and welcome to Hospitals in Focus. I'm your host, Chip Kahn. Thanks for joining us for a special episode on the coronavirus pandemic. Joining us today is Dr. John Perlin, the Chief Medical Officer and President of Clinical Services at HCA Healthcare. HCA Healthcare is battling this virus on many fronts for its patients, and John's role puts him right in the middle of the fight. I know that you are very busy, John, so I appreciate your stepping out for a moment to take time to talk with us. Chip, it's always a pleasure to be with you. I just wish the circumstances um, uh, are different, but um, whatever we're doing in HCA healthcare, we're certainly um, joining in force with uh, all of our colleagues in the healthcare community uh, and uh, in government. Our, our goal is the same, which is really to minimize the effect of this um, pandemic uh, on our patients, on our communities, on our economy. But certainly, uh, hospitals and healthcare systems are at the very front lines. Uh, and even as we speak uh, across our system, we have an excess of 1,200 patients under investigation, and uh, about 10% of those are, are positive for, for COVID at this moment. Gosh, you know, John, I've been doing a health policy in Washington for 40 years, and I don't think I've ever seen any kind of threat to America's health care like we see today. Sort of to get started, uh, can you talk about why this disease is more of a threat and different from swine flu, SARS, and earlier challenges from viruses? Yeah, so let's break that question, important question, into a, a few pieces. Let's start with the importance of it as a pandemic. You may not realize this, but since um, 1900, there have actually been 10 pandemics. Uh, the greatest one, of course, or as greatest in terms of scope, um, but tragic, was the flu pandemic of 1918, really through 1920. This was a time before um, influenza vaccination, of, of course. Uh, and the importance of that uh, is directly relevant to this coronavirus of 2020. That is, we're not immune to it. In 1918, 1920, population had seen other strains of flu. In 2020, population has seen other strains of coronavirus. Most coronaviruses are just um, nuisance colds. There are a few forms like SARS and MERS that are very serious in terms of their lethality, but not transmitted terribly well. And, you know, they sort of died out quickly. So this is an important pandemic for two reasons. One, it's novel. No one in the population has immunity to it. So everyone is susceptible. Uh, and it's fairly effective, as effective as flu and person-to-person -person transmission. Uh, and two, uh, in 2020, unlike 1918 to 1920, we're connected as a world through air transport. Uh, and so this pandemic uh, is accelerating simultaneously in many quarters uh, of the world. So what is this virus, which is so virulent, what does it mean for physicians, other caregivers, hospitals? Why is facing this crisis different than other healthcare challenges that we've had in past years? The, the magnitude, the sheer magnitude is different with coronavirus, now called COVID-19. The magnitude is extraordinary in that it's in so many different parts of the world and corners of our country uh, at the same time. And the fact that no one has immunity to it means that um, 
Uh, it's a respiratory disease that's fairly easily transmitted. If you and I were within six feet of each other and I were carrying COVID, I would be dispersing with every breath some particles of, of the virus. If I were symptomatic, we know that I have a higher viral load. So if I were coughing or febrile, there would be more particles of virus. And your being within six feet would mean that you invariably would inhale some of those particles. And so the transmissibility is, is substantial. Unlike the flu, we think this particular coronavirus can transmit a little further, maybe six feet instead of three feet. And this is why breaking the cycle of transmission with masks, ironically, more importantly on the source, important in healthcare settings on a potential recipient, but on the source um, is really important in breaking that cycle. So the fact that none of us have immunity, the fact that each one of us can infect more people, more than one, means that this has the opportunity to accelerate to a susceptible population very, very quickly. I want to break it into a couple parts. We've heard you know, that older individuals, and we can talk about this more later, have a higher likelihood of mortality. But here's, here's the problem. If there's a rapid acceleration by a person who's infected, infecting more than one other person, then the epidemic in a particular area, the outbreak in an area, increases more rapidly. And so the conversation that's going on right now is all about not only protecting people from getting the infection in the first place, but also making sure that the peak isn't as, as tall in a short period of time so that those individuals who not only get the virus, and frankly, most will be asymptomatic or have minimal symptoms kind of consistent with a cold, but for those people who develop serious respiratory illness, need hospitalization, or even critical care, don't arrive all at once. That's this concept of flattening the curve, changing this from a tall peak that overwhelms the system into a more moderate flow that ultimately either doesn't affect as many individuals or at least tempers the pace of all those individuals being sick simultaneously. Hospitals uh, are prepared to take care of every season, to take care of patients with the flu, very sick patients, or patients with pneumonia, illnesses that maybe aren't so different from this one. How is the effect and the advent of this pandemic, though, going to change the day-to-day -day running of hospitals and make uh, the the very management of hospitals have to contend with something uh, that's very different from earlier experience. Well, the rapidity of spreading an infection in a community, for the reasons we just talked about, could potentially be overwhelming to the healthcare infrastructure in that community. So hospitals have to be prepared for a surge of patients in a very short period of time. Second, unlike flu, none of the healthcare workers are immunized against COVID or coronavirus. So there's one degree of susceptibility there. Like flu, however, like any respiratory, the hospital or healthcare environment has to be prepared to use what some people call universal, others call standard respiratory precautions. And those are barriers to interrupt the flow of transmissible respiratory diseases. Because no one has immunizations or immunity, everyone 
is susceptible. So it's critically important that those patients with coronavirus or COVID are separated from those individuals who are susceptible and don't. It's kind of like parents say when they take their child to a pediatrician's office and there's a well baby side and a sick baby side. You don't want the well babies going in the area with the kids with infectious diseases. So the hospitals and health settings are working really hard to keep a sort of hot zone, if you will, or flow of individuals who either potentially or do have COVID away from those individuals who don't, who still are afflicted by the maladies that occur on a daily basis, a fall with a broken hip, a stroke, a heart attack, any of those things. So the amount of activity simultaneously, the fact that no one's immune to this, the fact that there needs to be extraordinary precautions in terms of respiratory care, the fact that the protective equipment to enact those precautions is in short supply. The fact that that equipment is manufactured in an area of China that is the seat of the initial outbreak of this um, now global pandemic are all the things that are really transitioning the health system from its usual activities to trying to do its usual activities while being intensely prepared and focused on taking care of patients with COVID. John, let's talk a little bit about the effect of this surge on hospital operations, but more importantly on the patients that have some of those other uh, maladies and illnesses that you talked about. I've heard that the government may uh, tell hospitals, uh, I know they've just done it in Pennsylvania, I believe, uh, that elective procedures have to be postponed or canceled in hospitals in prep, in preparation for this potential coming surge. What's going to happen to those patients and how will that be managed? Well, first and foremost, let me assure you that HCA Healthcare uh, is committed to our mission, the care and improvement of human life. A patient shows up with heart disease, a heart attack, or a stroke, or a broken hip, we will be there. We will take care of them. That's emergency care. That continues on, and we will find the way, and I have confidence that our colleagues throughout all of healthcare will find the way to do those things. Those things that are truly elective, a screening mammogram, a screening colonoscopy, it really may not make much of a difference if those things happen today or three months from now. In fact, CMS has released guidance that have said those things that won't change a patient's health over three months really should be postponed. And that's really to both create the capacity for taking care of COVID, as well as to make sure that the protective equipment like masks that would be used in those procedures uh, is conserved for those COVID patients uh, are not used on patients who, frankly, can wait. But there are certain things that are scheduled, but they're really not elective. So take, for example, a patient with unstable coronary artery disease. Now, their procedure may be scheduled for next week, but you know, within three months, they could have an extraordinary catastrophic event. That needs to continue on and we'll find ways for those things to continue on. But here's the problem. There's no perfect bright line or celestial knowledge of who, for someone with an advancing cancer, with heart disease, other vascular disease, 
might not have a bad event in that period of time. And so those things have to continue on. Those things that are truly and fully discretionary have to be postponed. And so we and all of our colleagues throughout healthcare are trying to draw that line to differentiate between the patients who uh, have needs that um, uh, are emergent, take care of, needs that are discretionary, postpone. And we have to work with our physicians and other clinicians to really assess those conditions that are scheduled but have inherent instability or potential to deteriorate and make a judgment uh, about getting those needs met so that the patient can have the best possible outcome. It's really a both-and equation. You know, John, this issue of the PPEs and having the protective equipment for uh, staff and obviously to protect the patients um, is actually one of the driving forces on public policy right now at many local areas, I know Pennsylvania just acted to require hospitals to cancel many of their elective procedures. And the reason that they did that was concern over the current shortage of PPEs. But that has an effect on the hospitals. And I hope that the Congress will recognize that as requirements across the country begin to be put in place, in anticipation of the surge and having the proper equipment, that hospitals are going to have to put off many procedures, which frankly are very important for hospital cash flow, and they help keep the doors open. And those patients that are not going to be receiving those procedures, they're going to be replaced as the surge comes by very expensive, very sick, in many cases, uh, elderly patients who are going to have experiences, and many of them in the ICU, for long periods of stay. And that's going to change the dynamic of hospital finance, that hydraulic that makes hospital finance work and, frankly, keeps the doors open and keeps the high quality of care going. And I hope that Congress will take that into account. And just as they're looking at other industries that are being affected by this pandemic, that this industry, which is so critical, it's at ground zero in terms of the public and this the challenge of this pandemic, that they're going to come up with the funding to make sure you have the resources, that other hospitals have the resources uh, to provide the care and be there for those patients today and, frankly, those patients that we'll have tomorrow. Chip, thanks for that um, uh, comment. I think you're absolutely right is that it does create a, um, a complex set of circumstances where revenues are down on one side and expenses are up on the other. I think the other message that I would hope that Congress takes home is that um, our healthcare infrastructure is absolutely integral to the defense and security of our nation. I think this event is showing us the fragility that when we operate just on the margins in terms of the adequacy of the numbers of beds across our communities, that we're not fault resistance against big threats. And um, I hope that uh, for the men and women who day in and day out are there in their communities to to serve their communities, uh, that they have the opportunity to know that uh, their government um, backs what they do And um, when we look back on the other side of this event, that we look back and say, 
this is part of who we are. This is part of the integrity of our communities, the fabric of our society, and essential infrastructure. And we make the necessary investments to keep that infrastructure robust. America has done it before, and I hope America will do it this in this case in terms of meeting an existential challenge and coming out on the other end maybe a bit stronger. I think it's an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, there are insights certainly into our supply chain, single channels of distribution, distribution not only from a single supplier, but a single geographic area. Uh, and um, I think there are also positive lessons. We've expanded our use of telehealth uh, as an example. Uh, and, um, you know, there are things that will go back to normal and there are things that will not go back to normal. This event will forever change us. Shame on us if we fail to heed the lessons on the one hand but also let's look at the opportunities for the increased use of technology as an adjunct to an essential part of our healthcare infrastructure. So John, HCA Healthcare has almost 200 hospitals and is in cities across the country, has large systems in many of these cities. What's unique in terms of responding to this crisis? What's unique about your size and scale in terms of how you benefit your patients, and what lessons do you think could be generalized from having a system like yours bring scale to this kind of crisis? Yeah, the privilege of scale in a system like HCA Healthcare with 2,200 sites of care is really the ability to learn at speed. As we've seen, as we look at what's going on around the country, COVID is surfacing. But not at all places at all times. And so we've seen pockets in Northern California and in a suburb of Atlanta um, that were the first sites where we in HCA Healthcare saw patients with, with COVID. And we were able to learn from the experiences and take those learnings and broadcast it out to the rest of the system. The second opportunity with scale uh, is the ability to synthesize a great deal of information very quickly. The information is changing not only on a day-by-day -day basis, but sometimes CDC and other elements of, of the Department of Health and Human Services are releasing guidance on surveillance, on care, on the use of personal protective equipment every few hours, and the ability to have teams actually work through that information, synthesize it, organize it, and get it to our frontline providers uh, is, I think, unique. So if one part is the ability to learn from the vanguards that are experiencing the epidemic, and the second is the synthesis of, of, of material for distribution, the third is that we're also serving as a national resource. We're actually using our surveillance data and our experiences around the country uh, as data feeds to the Centers for Disease Control and departments in health and human services. And as of yesterday, I'm committed to, to sharing data with FEMA and some academic researchers so that we could not only detect outbreaks in particular communities, um, but also really examine the big data that are an inevitable byproduct of the provision of healthcare to help to understand what confers more risk to particular patients, or in fact, what sorts of features of treatment what medications, either purposeful or incidental, actually confer benefit. So those are the things that we're working on and the advantages of a large system, learning fast, scaling information, and contributing to really the care of our nation. And um, 
I, I believe, the, the, the care of humanity more broadly. John, looking at national policy beyond just the care, uh, what do you think are the implications for hospitals of the president declaring a national emergency? How will that be enabling to you? The president's declaration of a national emergency is, is very helpful. I mean, first, it, it, it sets a tone that we are faced with a global pandemic. This is not business um, uh, as usual. Second, in terms of enlisting capacity to do things differently, let me give you an example of, of how that helps in practical terms. So, for example, if a hospital is already taking care of quite a number of, of, of patients and is at capacity, MTALA would usually require that you do a medical screening exam before sending a patient to an alternate site. We know that we want to keep hotspots and examinations of patients potentially with COVID away from patients without COVID. And so the ability to do something that MTALA wouldn't usually allow allows for a better flow of care for patients with non-COVID needs and for patients with COVID needs. We know that if there are surges, we'll need to press others into uh, in, into service. Uh, in the past, uh, we haven't been able to use telemedicine, telehealth, as efficiently as, as it might be used because sometimes the best support is across a state line. Now, the ability to provide telehealth services across state lines or offer temporary uh, emergency uh, credentials to people across state lines really allows expansion uh, of the workforce. So these are a number of uh, facilitators. There's been uh, a good bit of regulatory relief, and that's important because I can assure you, whether it's a clinician at the bedside or uh, an administrator, throughout our hospitals, and I am certain throughout every hospital in the United States, everybody is heads down focused on making sure that there's the capacity to care for COVID patients and the capacity to care for the needs of, of patients with the usual range of uh, emergencies or other urgent needs. John, so to, to close out here, let me ask you about the activity on Capitol Hill. The, there's been a coronavirus one bill, a coronavirus two bill. Um, how do you see it, the importance of the Congress acting to support the needs of your patients uh, in HCA healthcare hospitals? Well, I think the most important work, executive branch, legislative branch, or otherwise, uh, has to do with the issue that's the most acute at the moment, uh, and that is the shortage of personal protective equipment. The National Defense Production Act, I think, is incredibly important. If I were king and had the authority of that act, I would direct the manufacturer of additional masks uh, and additional other protective equipment, such as face shields. That's the long pole. Uh, and we need to make sure that we use both the policy and that is regulatory authorities as well as the statutory authorities uh, to really meet these particular needs. John, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, I know it was uh, difficult to walk away from your immediate responsibilities and it's great that we have an opportunity to have you here on a podcast with us uh, informing the public from the standpoint of HCA Healthcare and the work you do there about the challenge uh, for the hospitals of the United States, not just HCA Healthcare, of this pandemic crisis. Well, Chip, let me thank you for the opportunity. And uh, let me just say that we are learning 
along with everyone else. Um, so we look forward and appreciate the exchange of ideas. We're really thinking about how do we manage surge? How do we care for the usual needs? How do we expand our workforce to, to meet both of those, um, those two? And how do we keep our care providers and our patients safe uh, as possible? Uh, and uh, this is our focus. This is our priority. It's a 24-7 job right now. And the teams are really nose down as they as are their brethren across the United States. And um, we look forward and appreciate the opportunity to learn together. Thanks so much for your leadership in creating this forum for that. Good luck, John. Join us next time as we speak with experienced leaders on new ideas about healthcare delivery and financing. Please listen, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, you can follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and me at Chip Kahn. This was Hospitals in Focus. I'm Chip Kahn. Thanks again for listening.